Hi guys, and welcome to the Fight Up Boxing Podcast. I'm Lukash, as always, and we've got an awful lot to talk about this week, so let's get cracking. Um, I'm simply not going to be able to cover everything that happened, but I'll try to cover, you know, the interesting things. Apologies if there was something that you really wanted to hear about, but I'm going to hit the major points. The running order is going to look like as follows. I'm going to talk about um, Juan Francisco Estrada and his surprisingly difficult win over Argy Cortez. And on the same card, Sivanathin on Shinga versus Hexel Flores, which was a fight of the year candidate. And if you haven't seen it, go and watch it, like, immediately. I won't talk about um, Erika Cruz versus Yelena Mladenovic. That was, um, it was a good performance by Erika Cruz, one that, from watching the first fight, we thought she was going to, yeah, it was, you know, it was fine, but, um, yeah, there's not, the, in this week, I'm not going to spend time on talking about it. I am going to talk about Andy Ruiz versus um, Ortiz. You know, we'll see how long I spend on that. Um, Jose Venezuela's surprising loss versus Edwin de los Santos. I'll just touch on that. Um, Abner Mara's fought on that card. He fought a draw with um, Miguel Flores, but I won't be covering that. I will be talking about um, the British card that happened on the Saturday. I'm going to mention um, Liam Smith versus Moquinho. But, um, yeah, that, that, that's not the main fight I want to talk about. The main thing I want to talk about is Dan Aziz versus Shaq and Peters. That, that fight was really good, and um, there was a fair bit to talk about from Aziz that I enjoyed. And um, Tasha Jonas was Patricia Burkhold. That was, um, yeah, it was a decent performance, and I, well, I want to surprisingly praise the, praise the corner work of um, Joe Gallagher. So I'll be doing that. Um, that'll be, I think, that for the week, unless I remember anything while I'm recording this. In any case, let's start at the top with um, Estrada versus Cortez. And I have to eat my words here a bit. Um, I was very disrespectful to Argy Cortez. To some extent, looking back, I I think I got a little bit. Um, I missed stuff in my preparation. Um, I looked at his former opponents, and it's true that none of them had been at world level when he fought them. But um, a few of them did step up to sort of world level. Um, after he fought them. So he's got wins over guys who got to world level eventually. So he wasn't like a complete nobody. And the other thing is, I simply just, you know, looking at his fights, I underestimated what he what he had to bring to the table. Um, you know, I thought he looked tidy and, you know, perfectly competent and not that fast. Uh, he was, you know, he wasn't as slow as I thought he was, but the thing that he really did have was um, certain technical intelligence that I just didn't see coming. And, um, you know, if I'd have known he was trained by Nacho Berenstein, I might have, um, I might have guessed more. But um, you know, not not everyone trained by great trainers is a great boxer. Um, so yeah, so the talk going into the fight and the talk coming out of the fight was how much was Estrada fighting down to the level of Archie Cortez, and you know, probably to some extent, it's hard to say whether you know, um, it's hard to say whether. He's, you know, where he is on the aging, he's been around for a while, while despite only being 32, or only being 32 is quite old for that division. But, you know, I think Estrada, yeah, he didn't come in in the best focus, that happens with him. But, uh, but at the end of the day, Cortez was good enough that Estrada, when he did eventually win, you know, get back himself back in and win, he didn't do it just by boxing well in the usual way. Cortez made him do things that were clever, which you know, he wouldn't normally have to resort to by doing things that were smart and um, and that Strada just wasn't ready for. So if Strada had been sharper focused right from the start, he might have worked this out faster. But um but it definitely just wasn't just a case of oh he you know he he was looking forward to the Gonzalez fight which got announced just after. He was overlooking his opponent, but I don't think it came just from that. So let's talk about a little bit of that. And why, you know, why Cortez was so effective, especially early on. And uh, what Estrada did to to figure him out. The thing to begin with is, well, the first thing to mention is the jab. Um, Estrada likes to really use his jab to figure the things out, figure, figure out the space. And Cortez just didn't really let him because his jab was really good. Um, you know, he's got a straight, sharp, fast jab that he was just sort of snapping Estrada back with. Uh, and he was varied with it, and this is part of the thing that um, I found really interesting, really clever on his part, is um, Estrada, part of why Estrada is so hard to manage for opponents is he changes up his timing a lot, 
but he also changes up the distance and the height that he comes in at by sort of crouching down, you know, sliding down and coming up underneath with his punches, all that kind of thing. He changes all that stuff a lot. And Quarters really disrupted his ability to do that by doing two things. When, and he had to be really on point to do this because if he'd got the wrong, he'd have been, you know, in trouble. Um, for, well, for it to be effective, essentially, the, the timing had to be really on point. Um, and the first thing was when Estrada did try to come, you know, he'd come in high and then sort of drop down as he came in. And the Cortes routinely met that with um, shots from low down coming upwards. So he'd come in, come, he'd have his hand low and jab up and straighten Estrada up. Or he'd come with like little uppercuts of things, um, just little hooks underneath that just straightened Estrada up as he was trying to drop down the level, you know, I'm not talking about this in an MMA, in an MMA sense, but as he tried to sort of bring himself down and uh, make himself a smaller target, um, Cortez would uh, just straighten Estrada up with these shots from upwards. And that was really neat, that was really tidy, and um, Estrada re really did find it difficult to work that out. And then when Estrada would you know, on the occasion that Estrada did make himself, you know, manage to bring himself down low and was trying to straighten back up and make himself, you know, bring the level up again, um, Cortez threw an overhand right and the overhand right for him was money. It was a brilliant punch throughout the fight and he hurt Estrada with it on multiple occasions. Um, that was fantastic. And yeah, and Estrada just really, I wouldn't say he struggled to cope with it because he wasn't being overwhelmed or anything, but, um, but the fact that um, Cortez had tools against Estrada's specific strengths and not just, you know, more than one thing that he was doing. And that was, that, uh, was difficult for Estrada because it's the thing with these, um, you know, the really great fighters, you can often work out how to stop one thing that they're good at. You know, fighters become with like one plan, but then they'll just do things another way or they'll work, out, work around it another way. And, you know, Estrada eventually did find his way here. I don't think there's really an argument for against his win, um, you know, you could, I, I, I don't think it would have been a horrible robbery if he didn't score I didn't fully score it myself, but um, it was an even fight throughout, um, more or less, you know, with Cortez sort of having the, the bulk of the early rounds in a starter sort of taking over later, but um, but it was, uh, yeah, Estrada wasn't getting dominated or anything, he was just um, not winning that many of the early rounds. And yeah, I think that was ultimately because he didn't expect Cortez to be coming with this, with these not like tools. You know, he expected Cortez to be a hard fighter, to be able to and willing to exchange with him, not necessarily be good enough to exchange with him. And uh, you know, he expected to, him to be able to move and to press because you know you could see that on the tape. Um, so, so those were things that Estrada would have known were coming, but I don't think he would have known. I don't think he guessed. I, you know, I definitely didn't. But yeah, I think Estrada overlooked how how much Cortez was going to be able to counter him. You know, it just the disruption of the game. He, Estrada thought he was going to be able to see what Cortez does and then work around it, and instead he had to he had to really think about it. And like I say, he came up with some really creative solutions, um, which was nice to see. So yeah, Cortez was basically, he was maintaining the range really well. He was controlling Estrada's ability, he was disrupting Estrada's ability to control the range and fucking with that distance really quite well himself. Like he wasn't doing the, he wasn't doing the little subtle shit, the shifts and things on his own, but Estrada couldn't do them properly because of what Cortez was doing. Um, Cortez, you know, he wasn't physically changing, like he wasn't changing the distance somewhat that much, but the timing of the things he was doing, his jab was really good. Like I, did, I don't want to, um, you know, I'm not going to say that all of a sudden we've got the best jab in boxing, but um, if that's representative of how his jab is always going to look, hopefully he gets chances in the future despite losing here. I think a lot of fighters are going to struggle with him. And, you know, we'll see how the rest of what I'm talking about here translates to fighters different than Estrada, because, you know, the tools he used here wouldn't be effective against Bam Rodriguez. To some extent, they might be against Chocolatito, but, um, you know, di different things for different boxers. It's not always going to be effective. But yeah, so he controlled the range really well. He did, you know, I say he didn't, he wasn't all that, um, you know, he didn't shift it himself. He didn't do the little tiny little subtle things. He did do, he does know how to fade off. Like he did, he did, he did know how to throw, throw combinations and then kind of fade off the back of them. Um, he did get into exchanges with Estrada, a lot, and um, that wasn't necessarily the greatest idea, but um, 
this was just two years as a boxer and uh, and you know early on he was winning those exchanges and especially whenever he could um, get Estrada to come you know move upwards into that overhand right um, which he did on multiple occasions like I say that was really good for him and uh, he had Estrada rocking a few times and the other thing one of the things that was the battle of the fight was Estrada started quite early on trying to go to the body of Cortez um, he tried to you know Estrada loves to do that go go low go high um, what Cortez did really well again and this was something Estrada isn't going to have come across very often is Cortez would essentially catch and counter but with body shots almost like he'd have his guard down and he'd use Estrada hitting him with body shots and he'd catch him on his elbows and then he'd go straight away and beat Estrada to the punch and he'd catch him upstairs like he'd go with he'd catch the shots downstairs and go upstairs and there were a few times when he you know where he caught Estrada out and this you know it slowed Estrada's plans down because Estrada loves that really smooth body head body head he's really good at it he's possibly out of like modern boxers he might be the best just at the smoothness with which he does it like there are other boxers who you know are fantastic at it in various ways but he's really you know he really rolls the combinations together in one piece when he gets rolling and he couldn't do that here well it was he found it difficult because um yeah because Cortez was using Estrada's bodywork as a signal to go upstairs um and yeah Estrada ultimately he did start making adjustments um uh, the adjustments were along the lines of firstly getting more physical and physically trying to shove Cortez off of his tidy like Cortez had a really tidy defensive shape I'm not saying he's a masterful defensive boxer but he could live with the punches he was taking and he could um, he did you know he did especially to the body um, take a lot of them better than uh, than you might have thought but um, but yeah he's basically just um, really he has a really good set stance shape to take punches, whether they land or whether he catches them on his guard and, you know, slides back from a few of them. And so Estrada started to get really physical and shoving him about, which is not, you know, it's something he's always capable of. It's not the thing that he's usually focused on doing. Um, you know, it's not his bread and butter. But in this in this fight, he really he did just start to kind of build his way about in the, in the, um, in the close exchanges a bit. Um, I think he kind of started to focus on the bodywork directly. So instead of trying, you know, he would go to the head as well. Um, and I'm not saying he abandoned the Badfield, but what turned the fight was the body shots. And um, I think he stopped, you know, he thought, okay, I'm being caught. When I try to go upstairs downstairs, I'm get. Uh, when I try to go downstairs upstairs, I'm being caught before I, before I get upstairs. So he just kind of stayed downstairs. And that did involve shipping a few shots to the head, although he also, you know, he did sharpen up his defence and uh, start working out the timing on the things coming over the top. That is true, but he started focusing on the body and really, you know, keeping that guard of Cortez pinned a bit more. And we you know when Cortez did try to answer to the head, um, he'd drive the body shots home. You know, he'd think that the exchange was finished and he started to carry on. That's actually one of Estrada's biggest strengths as a boxer. It's kind of, I wouldn't even say overlooked, it just doesn't come up that often, um, but his ability to extend combinations past where his opponent is comfortable, you know, his opponent would have drilled, um, okay, this, this much and then go, you know, this, this is the exchange and then we're getting out of there. And Estrada's become really, you know, he's always been really good. Like his first performance ever that we saw against Roman Gonzalez involved him beating Gonzalez in extended exchanges. Gonzalez was the one who ended up shorting the exchanges, which basically never happens. Um, and so, yeah, so Estrada's really good at that. And in this in this case, he just kind of went, okay, I'm going to go to the body. I'm going to go to the body and again, keep going to the body until you move those hands. Like your attacking plan involves you taking my shots to the body and going upstairs. So I'm just going to keep whacking him in the body and not, not let you go upstairs and that's when that you know the fight started to turn the knockdown happened um it was in the seventh round uh, the knockdown it was a body shot there were headshots in there but the body shot was what hurt quarters and the body shots i think were what ultimately hurt quarters enough that he had to start sl slacking uh, not slacking he sat at the pace a bit he had to start thinking about protecting himself like early on it was to quarters benefit that he was happy to take 
shots. Both of them were happy to take shots to give shots. Later on, yeah, Cortez still did that, but he did have to think about, you know, if I get him wiped and I'm gone, I'm going to want to throw up and have to go down. And that was a key important part of the fight. Um, but the, yeah, the other rather interesting, so those are two things, getting really physical and working the body, but the interesting thing I want to talk about with Estrada is his he didn't do this all the time throughout throughout the fight, but he, he did. You could see it a few times. Um, was he would disrupt those shots, especially those shots coming over the top of the right hand, um, and you know he'd disrupt that attempt to stop his level change by doing something that I wouldn't recommend you treat as a game plan from the off. Which was that, um, but it was it showed imagination and it showed him working. Okay, working between the gaps, really seeing where the weakness was, where the hole was in what Cortez was trying to do to stop him and um, and dealing with that and it dealt with it in a really unorthodox way because it involved leaping in which you know as you know is not something you normally think of as good practice um, but yeah basically what he'd do is he'd start off at a middle middle distance sort of the edge of the fighting range quite square on and then he'd come in like almost leaping in it wasn't he wasn't amicarning it but he'd jump in really quickly but turn as he did so and um, come down, but also he'd be protecting, he'd have his guard right up the middle, so the shots coming up the middle would catch on the guard, and he'd basically come down and curl up and just basically bounce into Cortez almost, um, you know, in a stance, almost shoulder barge him, and, uh, and go to work from there. Like He'd break Cortez's stance and he'd go to work. And, you know, that was one of the things he did. This wasn't, you know, his only plan for the whole fight. This is why Estrada is so good as a fighter. Um, yeah, it was, you know, one of the things he did. Um, he also um, did more normal Estrada things, more usual Estrada things. Like, he'd hang back and um, he'd... This is another thing that, again, you wouldn't teach as a textbook thing. But, um, but it's something Estrada does well, is he'd sort of hang back and then wait for his opponent to finish his work. You know, he'd make like he's going to move in, not move in, wait for wait for Cortez to work, and then throw punches from, like, longer away, where he'd be leaning in to throw them. And he's good at protecting himself like he's leaning in angles where he's quite safe. Um, it's nonetheless, you know, leaning in isn't something you normally expect, but he's essentially crossing the range much faster. Like, he, so he, Cortez would think that he's closer, um, further away than he is, and uh, Estrada was sort of, you know, leading and uh, just sort of whipped the strikes in um, really fast from quite a long distance. Something that Estrada did in his first fight with Trusica Turungovsai in the last round, he did that to a really extreme extent in that fight. In this one, it was more of a, you know, patient, patient, do that, um, you know, sit back, let Cortez whiff with a couple of punches and snap them in. Um, and he did just generally push forward more. Um, you know, even when he wasn't being physical, I think this possibly I should have led with this, but um, even when he wasn't being physical, it was notable that he was pushing into Cortez's space because Strada is typically quite an in and out fighter. He's a pressure fighter, more or less, but he's in and out, in and out. Like he loves to do that. And here he did start pushing Cortez back. Like the last few rounds were very much Strada going forward, Cortez going back. He was pressure fighting, he was trying to push him to the ropes, <clears throat> all of that kind of thing. And uh, and yeah, and look, don't get me wrong, this wasn't a fight where Cortez won all the early rounds and Estrada won all the late rounds. Um, it was, you know, back and forth, even out, evenly throughout. But, um, you know, you could say um, Estrada did start to, you know, he won in the back half. Um, he definitely won in the back half of one of the judges' court cards, because this was one of those where it was open scoring, and it showed you, you know, how fantastic good an idea that is, because... Um, they announced after eight rounds, he announced what the scoring is um, to the crowd, and uh, two judges had Estrada two points up, and one judge had Cortez two points up. And the crowd booed the third judge because it was Estrada's hometown. And that judge scored all of the last four rounds to Estrada, while the other two scored the last two rounds even. Um, so, you know, you can see you can see how wonderful that is. That judge really felt um, completely unpressured, and it definitely didn't affect him at all. Um, but yeah, it was ultimately... You know, you've got to wonder, like, Archie, Archie Cortez is not a Roman Gonzalez. You've got to wonder if Gonzalez shows up, you know, in the top ship shape and Estrada shows up in this shape, um, 
it's going to be tricky for him. You do think Estrada always does bring it for the biggest fights, so I'm not going to you know, come out of this going, oh yeah, this is a horrible performance. And also, like I say, Cortez, we, I underestimated him. I think we all did, but I was a bit disrespectful, so I sort of have to apologise to him for that. Um, but it was just a cool performance from him, and I hope to see more from him. I hope he doesn't get shafted by people going, oh, you know, it's too much for too little reward, because that was really good. Um, yeah. That's what I'm really going to say about that. I've been talking for 20 minutes, so that's quite a long time to spend on that fight. Um, the other fight on the card that I have to talk about, um, and I hope you've seen it, is um, the light flyweight fight between Sivanathi, Nonchinka, and Hector Flores. And that was, uh, that was you know, that was really fantastic. That was a, fa- that was a real war, like, all the way through, especially early on. Um, Nonchinka won a split decision. Um, yeah, both fighters came out of that with an awful lot of credit, but I have never gone from, well, you know, I underestimated Cortez. Um, with Nonchinga, it's not that I missed things. I mean, probably I did, but um, he really clearly worked on things in his time out. You know, I worried that he was out for more than a year after the fight that he probably shouldn't have won to, um, as an eliminator for this title. Um, and he just really clearly worked on some things. The thing with Nonchinga going into this fight that I was worried about was his... He's clearly hurtable um, and clearly didn't like being hurtable. Like he'd panic when it happened. And he got in his last fight, he got really gun shy and when, when he felt the power of his opponent. And in other times I'd seen, you know, bits and bobs where he'd just panic and flail when he got hurt. And the thing is, in this fight, is um, Hector Flores hits really fucking hard, especially to the body. And Nonchinga clearly felt it on multiple occasions, but he knew what to do, and not just mentally, but technically. Like he'd bite down on the gum shield, and he'd go through, and he'd react properly. But he technically knew how to react to the thing that was hurting him. He knew how to protect himself and respond, and you know both to cover himself up from the further paid damage and to back his opponent off. And that was just really cool. Um, so. And the thing, the other thing is, um, apparently, um, I haven't seen this confirmed, but um, apparently he was um, suffering from a stomach bug. And, you know, after the fight he was vomiting and had to go to the hospital. If that's true, then that just makes it all the more remarkable because eating those body shots, you know, Flores is a hellacious body puncher. He really does love to work the body. And when he fought Jay Harris, I think it was last year, he um, he brutalised him to the body and he was doing it here. Um, yeah, um, what I would say is that in this fight... Um, yeah, it was such a close fight that I'm not going to come out of it saying, you know, Nonchinga is definitely the better overall fighter. He won the fight, I have no problem with that. Um, I'd say Nonchinga is the more skilled of the two. Um, Flores has the better physical ability, especially because Flores is, you know, Nonchinga, I am super impressed with how he dealt with being hurt, but he was more easily hurtable than Flores throughout this fight. Um, so Flores had that, that physical advantage, and he had the advantage of being, you know, he knows what he's doing, really focusing on the body. Um, Nunchinga did a bunch of stuff. Um, he can fight at range, and that was his plan. Uh, he That didn't work out at all. And this is another thing that I want to mention. I was really impressed with this corner. It was fantastic corner work. And the first reason it became fantastic was because if you come into a fight, if a boxer comes into a fight with a game plan, okay, this guy wants it to be war, we don't want it to be war, keep it at range. And that doesn't work. From bad corners, you often see them going, okay, just screaming, going, you need to keep it at range. What are you doing? Why aren't you doing it? Remember what we did in the gym? You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, if your fighter doesn't want it to be a war, and it's a war, then clearly there is something that they are not able to do, that they don't have, or that their their opponent is too good at. Get them through the war. And his corner was brilliant at this, mentally and physically. Like, there's use... um, there's moments where you can see they're talking him through it. There's, I think it's in the end of the fourth round. Um, there was a clip doing the rounds on Twitter of him, uh, of um, Nanchinga's corner, you know, going, you have to be okay with this. Like, no matter how hard it is, no matter how hard this is, you have to be okay with it. And, you know, on its own, that clip just is just, you know, not that much. But that kind of thing was throughout the fight. They were sort of calming him, but geeing him up at the same time. You know, they were not panicking. They weren't shrieking at him. They were like, this is a war we have to go to war. But, um, and that's the thing. They also technically talked him through the war. They, 
they spoke, you know, they calmed, they calmed him and they led him and they, he knew what he was doing and that ultimately won him the fight because you could see, like I say, you could see that he felt, you know, he could feel the pain and he didn't like, you know, he doesn't like being hurt, but it was, you know, it's ultimately, it's a waterpingly brave performance because he got his way through it. He worked his way through and he tucked himself um, away well. And this is the, you know, the thing. Um, before he'd kind of panic and flail and go, ah, and you know, and just get hurt more. And this occasion, like I say, he'd tuck up. He'd um, when he was hurt to the body, he'd bring his hands down, protect the body, start slipping punches, and uh, and you know, then counter back Flores off. And um, when he was hurt to the head, he'd back off, slip away, and uh, and do that. And there were times when his timing broke. Like you can see, this is new stuff. There were times when he didn't get the timing right, and he'd catch three or four shots in a row. And again. That is a time when a fighter would often panic. You couldn't blame them for it. Um, that they'd freak out. It hasn't worked. I don't know what's happening. He kept his cool, and um, and uh, if he had to, he'd just disrupt Flores. He'd grab hold or he'd shove him off or whatever. Um, and then he'd just recalibrate and get back to defending. And just that coolness under pressure that he's is so clearly not natural to him and yeah he's taught himself it i'm so impressed with that performance so the thing is it was a very even fight and uh you know if flores had won i couldn't complain but i was i'm glad nunchinga won it because i'm just so impressed with how clearly he has work to improve what he has and anyway that's nunchinga um the fight was a fantastic war like it was brilliant the first two rounds or so were kind of feeling each other out and then flores and this is a thing you know i'm talking about all the improvements nunchinga's made um Flores pushed him into the fight that Flores wanted. And he turned it into a phone booth wall. They were slugging it out. His footwork was good. His ability to, you know, not get disrupted. You know, his movement didn't get disrupted by the jab of Nunchinga at all. Yeah, he took it to where he wanted it to. Um, he's just a little less subtle than Nunchinga once it got there. But, um, you know, he still did a shitload of work in there. He, you know, he's really fantastic to the body. And he's good, you know, he's just good working up and down. And his volume, not just his intensity, is incredible. Um, he, you know, his defense is a little open, and that's you know it, that is what got Nunchinga through. Because if um, if Nunchinga had been relying just on his defense, he would eventually have been prized apart. Because it's not just relentless; it was pretty crafty pressure. But um, but he was able to repeatedly back Flores off, even you know in the midst of exchanges, he'd slam an uppercut in the middle, and Flores would have to go oh, oh and back up. You know, there's um, there's a full, full of stuff like that, and um. And, you know, well, let's be fair, in a very complete, little practical sense, what won the fight was the knockdown. There was one knockdown in this fight, and Chinga scored it on Flores in round two, which was early on, before the war really got going. And that was, um, that was what the, that was when the, Munchinga kind of, it looked like he might still get the fight that he wanted, where he kind of just, uh, as Flores was approaching, he kind of chopped him off a little bit and then clacked him with a one-two, and the overhand right just knocked him down. Um, and yeah, that was um, that was what's turned. That was what um, won him the fight. That was the difference in the scoring. That was what gave him the split decision. But um, but yeah, throughout the fight, basically, even as good as he was, as well as he was doing, as much as good as his defense was for most of it. Um, Flores was getting through enough that if Nunchinga hadn't been able to press him, push him off, and back him up um, occasionally, um, Flores would probably have ground him down eventually. But so you, you had this really like, just completely relentless pressure fighter being backed off and backed off. And it has to be said, um, the later rounds they were no less full of action, but the sting was less. The Flores got a bit tired, and again. Um, that may not have happened, or may not have happened as quickly if Nunchinga hadn't been regularly working the body as a counter. You know, yes, Flores is the body worker of the two, and he was um, brilliant himself working the body. But Nunchinga would respond by hitting him in the gut, and um, you know they both kind of slow down. But Flores, he did start losing the steam on his punches. You know, towards the end of the fight, they were becoming more arm punches, and Nunchinga, you know, he was equally tired. He was a bit more technically prepared to be tired. Um, he was he had a bit more snap all the way through to the end. I think mean, it was still you know not necessarily helping win the round more, but it helped him get through because Flores was starting to tire and he wasn't hurting him as much. And uh, and yeah, that was a, that was a difference in the fight. So you know it was really like 
you've got to give full credit to both. You know, I've been raving about Nanjinga. They're both of them. It was it was a fight of the year contender. You know, I don't think I'm going to give it fight of the year because Conlon versus um, versus Wood was a. It was less of a complete and utter ball to the wall, but there was more sort of full-on drama, if you get me. But um, so yeah, it's between those two for now. Um, yeah, you'd really have to hope that they both get um, some kind of push out of this, that they both get the notice they deserve. Nunchinga, well, you could have a rematch, but um, but the plan, like it would seem to me that the better plan would be to have Nunchinga look for um, unifications and for Flores to look at other fights, other opportunities to get on the zone cards and build himself a name as an exciting fighter and have them rematch in future. Hopefully for belts that Nanchinga would still have, you know, hopefully from Nanchinga's perspective. This is a, a good division. This has got um, Kenshiro Taraji and um, Hiroshi Goguchi are the two Japanese champions and Jonathan Gonzalez. That, there's good fights out there, you know, it, hopefully those unifications can be made. And yeah, and these fighters deserve some, you know, light flyweight is never going to be a superstar division. It's not even going to be like Superfly was marketable partly because the fighters in it were great, but partly because they could market it as Superfly and that's how it's called on a poster. Lightfly just doesn't sound cool on the poster, it's going to be harder to market. Um, but you know, I hope we get, you know, I hope they get the juice they deserve um, as much as, you know, the realities of boxing can make it. And yeah, for Nunchinga, it may be worth pushing for the for the unifications in Japan um, he may get more money there in any case the point is um, it's probably worth their while going off to do other things before the rematch although you know I would, I would guess that Flores would bite your hand off for a rematch um, you know tomorrow if if you gave it to him but yeah it was a, just a fantastic war like um, just you know go and watch it basically is what I'm saying here and if you've seen it then yeah that's uh Let's enjoy what we saw. So that was be that off that card. So the next thing to talk about is a Sunday night card between Andy Ruiz and uh, Victor Ortiz. I'm not going to talk about this one in huge detail um, because if I'm brutally honest, I didn't watch the whole fight all the way through in one go. You know, it just um, there was so much stuff happening. Yeah, I didn't. But um, but what was interesting to know um, for me was from Ruiz's side. I think he's undergoing a change in what he how he wants to fight because he was always this kind of bouncy figure this in and out boing boing you know um surprisingly rapid footwork back and forwards um to go with the fast hands and he seems to be now in this fight um to be trading more on being more of you know he did still move on the outside but um it was sort of um steady circular movement and he, when he came forward, it was a, yes, he did still bounce occasionally, but it was sort of steady pressure and he was sitting down on his punches more. Um, I think it's worth noting, and I am going to borrow a bit of analysis here from um, a fellow or in on the Bad Left Hook forums, because, you know, he did a fantastic post on this on uh, in the comments section, um, Conman Rad. He, he broke down in depth um, the reasons why Andy Ruiz was um, circling to the power hand of Ortiz. Um, you know, what essentially came to is that Ortiz won't be used to doing that and that sometimes it's the right thing to do. And for that, for the most part, Ruiz did it properly by, you know, circling out rather than tight. Because if you circle tight towards the power hand, you're going to get clocked by it. If you circle out a bit further, you're nullifying it by... Um, and making your opponent have to close range, essentially. And, you know, Ortiz didn't seem comfortable with that. And then, you know, when Ruiz pushed forward, he, yeah, he did damage. Um, ultimately, the fight was uh, decided on the cards by the knockdowns. Ruiz knocked Ortiz down um, three times. Um, yeah, and uh, if that hadn't happened, he would have lost on the cards. Uh, he was uh, three points up on one card and um, one point up on... No, he was one point up on one card and three points up on the other two. So if he hadn't scored those three knockdowns, it would have been a split draw, I believe, if I'm calculating that right. So yeah, those ultimately won him the fight. And uh, yeah, you know, Ortiz was in there with all the craft that he's got. Ortiz has always been, well, always, for as long as we can remember, he's been the guy who's been really good technically, but just doesn't necessarily have the speed or the stamina necessarily to 
to live with with that as well as he sh you know should want to at this level and i think you know that that proved true here he uh he boxed well he had he has more tools he's more technically well schooled than ortiz but he couldn't handle the fast hands and the snappy power that would that Ruiz was delivering yeah i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna talk in depth about that fight but um but it definitely was worth mentioning and you know ruiz is gonna be he may be willed as next opponent um if he is Wilder's next opponent, this new sort of direction that I think he's taking, um, it's probably the right one for him because um, because pushing Wilder back is a better way to fight him than trying to jump in and out on him, giving him the chance to set up that right hand. Um, that right hand is a lot less dangerous if you can push in on him. But he has to stay focused because, like I say, he was making mistakes doing it and he has to be careful. Um, yeah, I would also say he does look physically stronger, I think, like he's still fat, he's still a chubby guy, but I think he looks, you know, his shoulders look much bigger to me than Ruiz sadly does, and his movement was certainly that of a guy more focused on strength and power than than previously when he was against all odds focused on agility, you know, you know, which was probably, you know, this is probably the right move for him just for sustainability, if we're honest. Um, so now he just has to work on that head movement and getting all that stuff right and protecting himself and tucking up as he comes in. And yeah, maybe he can be, you know, I wouldn't write him off against Wilder, no way. But um, yeah, let's see how that shakes out. Let's see if that happens, first of all. Um, yeah, on the on the card as well, I'm just going to touch on this. I'm not going to go into depth. Um, but there was a prospect that I uh, really like, um, Jose Valenzuela, um, fighting... Um, Edwin de los Santos, who was a prospect himself, who lost um, earlier in the year, I believe. Um, um, he lost back then, and he's clearly got himself together and got himself back on track. Now Venezuela will have to do the same thing. And I, I did say this in my preview, I touched on it, I worried about it. It's that Venezuela, and I've talked about him before, I really like his footwork, I really like his attack, and all of that stuff, but his defence is very much predicated on being fast on being having faster reflexes than his opponent and on being slightly confusing and being not in you know where his opponent wants him to be and all that kind of stuff and that was going to be a trouble for him eventually and you know it might be a positive for him to be have found out this early because um because he's got time to start thinking about how to really incorporate proper defense um where he can ride the shots if he takes them because he was off balance you know and like de los santos was just yeah, he just punched with him and just clock him while half Venezuela wasn't ready and you've got to be ready to take the shots. So yeah, no, that's that. Um yeah, Valenzuela. Look, I'm not gonna write off Venezuela. This isn't a thing where you lose your not your you're not worth it as a prospect anymore. And I think we're showing that increasingly. And you know, De Los Santos proved that himself by, you know, taking and winning this fight. So yeah, no, that's cool. They're both cool fighters. Um it was a short fight, you might as well go look it up. Um yeah. The last card to talk about from the weekend is the British card, and the lead fight was um, Liam Smith versus Hassan Mukinho. And there isn't a lot to say about the fight because it kind of started and then it stopped. Um, I think there's a suspicion that Mukinho was um, hurt in the fourth round. Like he he was in the fight, he'd uh, possibly taken one or two of the early rounds, and then in the fourth round he just started. He went down once for apparently no reason, and then he went down again, and the fight was stopped. But both times, and this is what really pissed me off. You know, maybe they thought he was cheating. Maybe they thought he was diving. Um, maybe they thought he was trying to buy. He was hurt somehow else and trying to buy time, which is probably true. Um, the referee sh probably should have stopped it. You know, just let Mukinho go down and stopped it. But both times, Liam Smith saw him go down and hit him after his knee was on the ground. And um, Victor Lochlin, I do not understand why Victor Lochlin didn't disqualify Liam Smith. Like I just don't get it. He hits him twice, like two separate occasions, not twice, you know, multiple times on two separate occasions while he was down. You can't do that. Like, and, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's, um, you know, you can go, okay, it's an accident, let's carry on. You know, if if they if you can keep fighting, let's carry on. And they won't fight any shots, but Mikino, you know, apparently not in a state to fight on for unrelated reasons. But if the referee's stopping the fight, he can't stop the fight from Smith hitting Mukinho on the ground and then go, okay, 
Smith wins. Like, I don't get it. And it's not, you know, it doesn't appear to have been that controversial. No, it doesn't appear to have started that much controversy. It wasn't talked about too much. You know, the, the commentators were just kind of like, ooh, why was Wikinger going down? It's like, yeah, well, we have to find that out. Why the fuck was Smith hitting him? Like, fuck you. I was just getting to like to like Liam Smith. Like, I was just getting to like, oh, yeah, he's, he's, um, he's taken his talent, you know, um, really worked what he's got and, made himself a solid fighter and he's going to get another world title soon hopefully, you know, hopefully. And this kind of thing just makes you want to go like fuck, fuck off just why 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 would you do that I don't understand like it pisses me off when you see things like that and it, it go uh, un, unchallenged um, I'm sorry but um, yeah but no the fight I really want to talk about is, um, on this card was Dan Aziz versus Shaq and Peters it didn't turn out to be the back and forth war that I wanted it to be because Dan Aziz just proved a little bit too good in a bit in the ways that I enjoy um, I do really like the performance the kind of performance, I said this on Twitter I do really like a performance when a fighter just slowly starts cracking the pressure and pushing harder and harder and breaking his opponent apart a little bit and um, and that's exactly what happened here is, um, it was fairly even early on but um, quite you know Quite soon within the fight, um, Peters just started, you know, he, he managed to, early on, he wasn't getting pushed back. Um, he managed to push Aziz back fairly consistently throughout the first two or three rounds. And then Aziz kind of um, just started pushing a little bit harder and laying a little bit harder into the shots. And um, the big difference between them then was um, when Aziz was pushed back, that's not what he wanted to be doing, but he was comfortable with it. He just lay back and waited for his chance to turn around. When Peters was pushed back, he didn't really know what to do. He didn't know how to defend himself properly. And that's a problem when you're a guy like him. Um, he needs to be on the front foot. But when you're not on the front foot, you have to be able to bide your time until you, until you can push your opponent back. And that's what won Aziz the fight. Because it wasn't like there was a huge difference in their overall attacking skill set. It's not like... Um, when Peters was pushing Aziz back, he was doing it perfectly well. He knew he was doing a sharp jab, you know, all the stuff that you want. And from a really long guy, um, using his length as an attacking tool, he does that all that really well. But when he did get pushed back, um, Aziz would use what his strengths are, you know, getting in close, shoving around, real strength, um, clubbing power. And... Um, and Peters didn't have a good response. Um, and there were things from Aziz. You know, I don't know if Aziz is ever going to be world level. He's 33. He's, he came to it late, so he's still kind of improving, but he's 33, so he's not got a lot of time. But there were crafty things in there. Like, there were still things that are like, oh, yeah, he leaps in a bit too much and stuff like that. But, for example, um, Peters being 6'6 six six for the division, and um, Dan Aziz is, I think, 5'10 or something like that, so he's small for the division. So there was a big, big gap between them, um, you know, there's um I think it was ten inches or something. Yeah, it's ten inch gap between them. So the uppercut was a punch on for Peters, and um, Dan Aziz, you know, loved the old school stuff. He came in often. It wasn't he didn't have cross arm guard on fully, but he'd come in with the cross arm guard just to block the uppercut off, um, especially you know as the fight went on, and um, that really did did hurt Peters' game because the uppercut was his punch of choice for pushing you know for standing straightening Aziz up and pushing him back so he he found that a problem when Aziz started pushing him back and then you know once they get in close um, Aziz's real strength is what he's really really good at is just punching with his opponents and eventually overwhelming them while he does that like he totally blew um Jose Burton away with that and Peters didn't fall apart like Burton did but he clearly also didn't like it like that was part of the problem for him um he wanted some space to work the moment to push Dan Aziz back, and he didn't have it because whenever he tried to throw a punch, Aziz would punish him for it. Um, Aziz is really good at that. You know, he'll take the shot to give the shot, but the shots he gives back are just much harder. He really hits clubbingly. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we've got um, Dan Aziz as a British lightweight champion. It will be interesting to see where he goes from here because um, this is a really deep division in British terms. And... Uh, some of the opponents potentially on the table for him, like um, as a British fighter, you know, he's a British champion, but you've got guys ahead of him like Rocky Fielding. That would be an interesting fight. Lyndon Arthur, um, I think he, you know, if Arthur doesn't improve on his inside game, um, he'd be as he would, um, he'd be, he'd find his very tricky. But that would be an interesting fight. I'm not sure if it's makeable, but it would be uh, 
interesting. You know, Craig Richards is up there. You know, the top four fighters in division in British terms are Callum Smith, Joshua Barty, Anthony Yard, and Craig Richards. Those are probably beyond. They're probably beyond disease getting them like, as opponents. Um, and they're probably. You know, I'm not sure if they're makeable because um, Aziz is on Sky with Boxer, and the others are with either Warren or with um, Hearn. I think Sky and DAZN can still work together, so maybe they are, but um, you know, but I hope he can get them, and if not, I hope he can get other sort of worldish level fights. I don't know how ready he is for it, you know, I wouldn't throw him in with Artaberto Abiev, but um, yeah, it would just be nice to see more from him. And yeah, the last fight on the card, which again, I'm not going to talk about in depth, but it was just a cool thing to see some things from Natasha Jonas. I, I like her as a boxer. Natasha Jonas is a... She's a female boxer who used to box um, much lower in weight. She used to box at um, 135 pounds and 130 pounds. And um, she lost to Kate Taylor at, uh, at lightweight. And um, she lost to her at Terry. She drew with Terry Harper at, um, at 130. So she jumped right up to um, to um, Super Walter. Um, and... Uh, I think she jumped like three divisions in one go. And last time she faced Chris Namas, who she just completely overwhelmed. And this time she was facing Patricia Burkholt, who was a champion of in um, in her own right. This was unification. And Burkholt was good, you know, by the standards of a shallow woman's division. Um, she's pretty good. But, um, but I did think she was going to have a problem in that her movement and her jab are better than the rest of her game. And if it got into exchanges, Natasha Jonas was going to be able to win them by... And this is the thing... She doesn't do it the same as Danazis, but she shares this tendency with Danazis. And um, Jonas is really good at punching with her opponents. What she's really good at, really, really good at, is timing her punches in between her opponent's punches. So like she doesn't even have to take a shot to give a shot. Like she will, but um she'll sort of slide back and then just as they punch, her punches will come after theirs and really rock them like in between their shots. And um and that was ultimately part of what won her the fight. Um one of the things that I want to highlight is um, Joe Gallagher because I I have historically given Joe Gallagher a fair bit of stick as a coach on the night, like um, as a cornerman on the night. Um, you know, I cannot argue that he's a good coach in the gym. He clearly is, like really, really high level. Um, you know, you can pick at um, whether he struggles. You know, he, there are things that I think he still struggles with, but he's clearly a really good coach, especially to you know a certain level. You know, he gets multiple fighters to world level. There's no arguing with that. Um, but on the night, his advice can sometimes be a bit either really basic or, you know, just unhelpful or just be kind of a pep talk. And in this fight, he gave exactly the right advice that um, that Jonas needed to hear, which was um, there were a few occasions when Burkhul, when she just got toe-to-toe. And the best, the gist of the message from um, from Gallagher was basically step off and then punch because the thing with Burkhardt is she swings wild when she gets when she has the space to swing she swings wild and so step off let her punch and then punish her for it and that was a really simply delivered message Jonas listened and you know I'm not sure if it turned the fight or not because I think she was going to win anyway but um but it made the job easier for her and you know that was just you know I like to yeah, it was good corner work. We had two examples of good corner work. We knew we had more, but those were the two that stood out for me. Um, and that was nice to see. And Jonas is just, I like, I enjoy watching her as a fighter. She's, you know, the way the way she starts doing that, you know, even if she's fighting opponents who are, you know, a bit subpar in the way they throw the punches, isn't it? It's fun to watch her exchange because I like the way that she times those punches in between the punches. It's just nice. Um, so yeah, and she's a good fighter to watch. Um, I don't know where her career goes from here, but uh, <clears throat> but um, yeah, she's um, she's in Terry Harper's division, so that's not a you know not at all a, a bad place to be. Um, yeah, that'll be an interesting fight. Um, have they fought before? I feel like they might have, but um, yeah, they fought at uh, they fought Hunter thirteen. Like I just said that a few minutes ago. So Terry, you know, the rematch with Terry Harper could be on. Um, now that Terry Harper has also moved up. Um, yeah, now Harper's moving up now to fight Hannah Rankin, apparently in this division, um, which she's doing at the weekend, I guess. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so, okay, let's wrap up that fight and talk about what's coming this weekend, um, which is the big women's fight um, between 
Clarissa Shields and uh, Savannah Marshall. And um, yeah, that's a really big women's fight, uh, undisputed. And there's also on the same card a unification between um, Michaela Meyer and Alicia Baumgartner, which is a which is um, a unification at 130. So we've got one undisputed um, fight between and Shields and Marshall really don't like each other. And um, Maya and Baumgartner apparently they you know I don't know so much of the story behind this, but um, but also that's what you know they're both good fights and they both have good apparently good like feisty backstories, um, fiery backstories, and so they're both worth watching. Um, as far as previews go, as far as previews go, um, yeah, I have to. I have to say a little bit of news, do, do a little bit of announcement, because we're going to try to do a fight type preview for you guys, but I'm going to be working on this fight for Bloody Elbow, doing the coverage for this, so whether I'm going to be able to do, also do fight type, you know, I will be covering afterwards, next week on the podcast, naturally, and, um, you know, all that good stuff, but um, but you'll find my coverage of it somewhere else. Um, whether you, uh, yeah, we'll try, I'll try to get a fight type stuff organised as well, but... um. You know, like I always say, I can't promise that. And on this occasion, you know, it's a little tricky. But yeah, that's where you'll find me um, talking about it. And um, yeah, back here next week to talk about it afterwards. And I really hope it's a good fight because, um, you know, these are the things, these are the times when women's boxing, it needs these nights because, you know, it was, women's boxing was in a bad place for years. Like it didn't have the coaching it needed. It didn't have the depth of, of competition it needed. Um, and, it, you know, it was just frankly a little bit, it was kind of depressing because, you know, you'd watch one fighter would get good and that just blow through everyone because no one else was good. And now you've got, now you're able to have genuine rivalries between two fighters. You know, I can't, I can't remember the names of everyone even back then, you know, I'm not going to go searching, but you have rivalries talked about in women's boxing between fighters who are like 40 pounds apart because they were the only two obviously actually good fighters and now you have multiple good rivalries between women who are on the same level as each other and um, and yes there are still big gaps in divisions there are still divisions where there's no one there and there are still you know huge jumps so fighters coming up you know fight people that are really outclassing and then jump up into really tough fights that still needs to improve but that will the more this kind of thing happens that's upcoming this weekend the more that will improve through the coming years so I really hope this is a great fight and a great night and um, and yeah I'm really looking forward to it to be honest um, so I'll see you next week to talk about it um, follow me on Crafty Boxing as always Crafty Boxing on Twitter follow the fight site at the fight site um, definitely do check out the fight site homepage where you will find there is now more regular Things, articles going up from new contributors and old contributors. We're, we're getting into a rhythm, um, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, check our Patreon for the same reason, and for the Discord, which is, you know, nice and active and a friendly place. And, uh, and um, yeah, if you um, if you enjoy our stuff, like, um, we're, still, um, we're still running the appeal for um, help for our editor and, um, you know, main organising uh, light and... Uh, um, you know, also one of our contributors, um, Iggy, who, um, if you, um, if you already, if you follow us, you will probably already know, but if you don't, check the front page of, um, of the fight site and you will see an appeal to our readers and you can find out what's going on there. And, um, if you're able to, you can donate, um, via links in that page and, you know, any help will be, um, thankfully received and, yeah, I will see you next week. See you next time.